You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. The mother of American modernism. That's how people often describe Georgia O'Keeffe. She's said to be the mother of American modernism. And I think largely that's attributable simply to the fact that she was an early modernist painter and she was one of the only prominent female artists of that time. And because of that, and because of her strength and her resilience, she became a sort of feminist icon in the early modern painting movement. But also, she was just an awesome person. As I had alluded to in my episode on Yayoi Kusama earlier this season, you know, Kusama admired Georgia O'Keeffe, and she wrote a letter asking her for advice back when Kusama was still in Japan. And Georgia O'Keeffe not only responded, offering advice, but but O'Keeffe offered support. When Kusama was in New York, Georgia O'Keeffe came to visit her. O'Keeffe even offered to let Kusama stay with her um, and offer her financial support and assistance while she was struggling to make ends meet as in early in her career. And so today we're going to focus on the iconic and hugely influential and all-around awesome person, Georgia O'Keeffe. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts and audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I've got Laura Dostal. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, And today we're going to be talking about Georgia O'Keeffe. Georgia O'Keeffe was actually from the Midwest. I always associate with her her with the Southwest, but she was born in... um, in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. She was born uh, November 15th, 1887, and her parents were dairy farmers, so she grew up in kind of that rural Wisconsin environment. Um, It's funny, like, to see she was named after her grandfather. You know, you always think of, like, family names living on. You never think of it, like, crossing genders. But she was named after her 
her her grandfather, George Victor Toto. Um, and she was the second of seven children. So coming from that that big family. Um, That's you a know, lot of brothers and sisters. I know. I know. And and she was one of the older ones, which both of my parents grew up in like big families and were uh, like, you know, my mom always talks about how like she was the oldest and she was like the second mother. You know, like she was in charge of helping to take care of some of her younger siblings. Yes. And from what I understand, George O'Keefe actually had a, a similar role. There were some points in her life where she was like kind of helping to take care of younger siblings. Um, but she is one of those artists that I guess from from an early age, she always knew she wanted to be an artist. When she was like 10, she and her sisters started taking um taking painting lessons from a local watercolor artist. And 1905, 1906, she studied at SAIC or the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, where she was like one of the top in her class, but she had to take a year off because of typhoid fever. Yikes. I know. Like that's one of those things that like you just think of it. It's so funny to think of, I guess it's not that removed from our reality right now as we're in a pandemic, but like that kind of stuff happened all the time in the early 20th century where people would have these horrible diseases that now we don't even think about. Right. So, I mean, maybe that gives us hope that you know yes. some things will will not be a part of our daily lives. From, um, from modern medicine, things. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but she had typhoid fever. She had measles. She her mom had tuberculosis. It was like you know the bingo card of everything yeah. from from that era. Uh, but she had to leave SAIC for for a little while. She took basically like a year off to recover and then she continued her education at the art students league of new york 1907 um and then while she was in new york she was visiting galleries of like modern artists you know she including like she went to uh 291 which was owned by her future husband alfred stieglitz You know, and Stieglitz was a photographer. He exhibited sort of the avant-garde stuff from uh, from Europe and the United States. And at that time, you know, early 20th century, the avant-garde, we would be talking about like cubism and things like that kind of coming up, as well as like photography was a big influence on her, um, you know, because – the Stieglitz and later the connection, he, he connected her with like other artists, you know, strand and stuff like that. But that photographic approach of like the close cropped imagery. It's that zooming in on features and kind of having that macro lens film that you would do in photography. Yeah. And so that was influential in her work. Like I said, she was going to those galleries and, you know, she was a painter, but, you know, she was also appreciating photographers and and works in other media that kind of influenced her compositional style. So in 1908, she unfortunately had to end her education. Um, She wasn't able to afford to continue um, studying, basically. Like her father had had basically gone bankrupt. Um, as I said, she grew up initially in a dairy farm in Wisconsin, but 
uh, her father had moved the family to Virginia. They, like they sold the dairy farm. He invested in starting his own business, thinking he was going to be fabricating like concrete blocks. But I guess like it just the business never took it off. Fell through. And then on top of that, like her mother had tuberculosis. As I said, like it was just there were a lot of difficult health conditions that everybody was dealing with all the time then. And so she kind of, she went into the workforce. So, you know, in 19, uh, 1908 to 1910, she's in Chicago. She's working as sort of like a commercial artist. And then she had to leave that because she had the measles. Um, and she began teaching art actually in 1911, which I always find funny, like thinking about, I don't, know that I read did she get her degree at that point because she had to discontinue her education for a while yeah I don't know maybe it was just different back then you didn't have to have an education degree to do that now that you're saying that I'm thinking Grant Wood was also an art teacher in Iowa and I don't think he came back from the army and started teaching art so I don't think he had an education degree either yeah I feel like it I feel like at that time it was just like you can draw Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, actually now, cause I'm, now that I'm thinking about like my, you know, way back history of education and like the educational reform movements and stuff right. from our teaching credentials. Yeah. Like you probably at that point, it was just enough that you demonstrated an, an ability in the content area you're teaching. Yeah. Because you think about like licensing systems and stuff, it's gone right. through that's its own evolution. Yeah. Um, so that's just like an odd bit. But yeah, she was okay. she was teaching it at actually different levels. I think early on she was she actually taught at like the high school she went to for a while. Interesting. Not like while she was a student there, but she like went back I, to the high school that like she had attended and then was teaching there for a little while. Yeah, I wonder if kids could imagine being like a teacher at their elementary school like later on. That would just be very weird. It it feels like it would be kind of surreal because you have to imagine, especially she was relatively young at that point. You know, she wouldn't have been that far out of high school. Probably a lot of her former teachers became her colleagues. Yeah. Um. Just kind of an interesting bit there. Very interesting. But, you know, from there, like I said, she was she was teaching for a while and she did continue her education eventually. Like in 1915, she was teaching at Columbia College, Columbia, South Carolina. So like I said, she she taught at different levels. She got to that college level. And it was around that time that she started doing some of the I would say we start to see the seeds of like what would become her signature style where like she created this series of 10 charcoal drawings um, and they were kind of abstracted, kind of innovative in the way that they had these organic shapes that were a little bit reminiscent of nature, but also a little bit abstract. And she she shared those with a friend who then passed them on to Stieglitz. And so in 1916, she's in New York, she's at the teacher's college of Columbia university. And, you know, Stieglitz sees that series of drawings and he loved them. 
He said they were like some of the freshest, most original drawings he had ever seen. And he starts to introduce her around. He wants to show her work at his gallery. Um, You know, Stieglitz was 24 years older than O'Keefe. So like he was much more established in his career at that time. Um, And, you know, he starts to introduce her to like Charles DeMuth and other like modern painters, but also, you know, the photographers, like I said, at that time. And that was influential on on her development and embrace of the somewhat the abstraction that was a new trend in modern art at that time. But also, like I said, the photography and the way that you crop a composition. Yeah. Well, and he would have brought her into kind of that New York art world. So she would have met, since he's already really established there, she would have met all these different artists and like known who to talk to and who to like look at their artwork as well. So he really like helped her to start her career. Yeah. And, and actually he really helped to elevate her career later on. Um, like I said, he was selling her, her stuff and I guess at, and this is one of those stories that I I always find like is so much about the ridiculousness of the art world, but I guess he at one point told the press that he sold six of her paintings to an anonymous French collector for $25,000. And like, from what I've read, there's like no record of this like transaction occurring. (laughs) But from that point on, she was a much more bankable artist because like that garnered some publicity and people were like, Oh, if a French collector is paying thousands of dollars for her paintings, you know, she's got got that seal of approval. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. So like from that point on, her work was fetching higher prices. She was, a, a, you know, gaining that stature and that that prominence. Um, and, you know, that continued throughout the rest of her life. And even actually after her death in in 2014, her painting White Flower Number no. One, which was painted in 1932, it sold at auction for over $44 million. Wow. It was like more than three times the record from a female artist at that time. And I I love her flower paintings for, for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I, I always found interesting is Stieglitz was, was guilty of this too. But like a lot of critics talked about her flowers as being symbolic of femininity and everything like that. But she was very adamant and forceful in her pushback saying, no, it's a flower. This is about observation. Her work was drawn from observation. And as much as it's associated with abstraction, in a lot of ways, it feels stylized to me because her, I would say her most famous work it is directly from observation of nature, of flowers, the desert landscape. Yes. It's got a unique cropping that gives a little bit of an abstracted feel. But she was very, very adamant in her assertion that, no, this is just observation. Yes. I do know as a child, she really liked, she was into science and studying like why things, how things are made, um, what like makes something grow. There's even a story I use, I always tell the kids that she used to try dirt as a child to see what it would, different dirt would taste like. 
like yeah. just as an experiment. I mean, she was probably like three or four, but she was very into science. So you can kind of see, you can see that in her artwork. It's like that zoomed in observation of the flowers and really just trying to study it and get to know every single part of that flower. Yeah. And she's, she's best known for her, her work of flowers. Like she, she made like 200 paintings yeah. of those close cropped flowers, but she, she did turn that same focus to other subject matter as well. She, she did, like I said, when she was in New Mexico, she was painting the desert landscape, but also she was painting rocks. She was painting leaves. She was painting just all sorts of things. It seemed like the common thread to me was this close examination of nature and a unique viewpoint on it. Yes. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. And so I, I guess with that, shall we turn our attention to one of her pieces? I'm going to leave it up to you if you have a preference. I, I pulled two images that I feel like are pretty strong examples of her work. Um, I pulled that record setting uh, Jimson Weed Flower Number 1 from 1932. Um, and then I also pulled the uh, Blue Morning Glories painting from 1935. Um which which do you like better? Do you have a preference? Um, my favorite is the Blue Morning Glories. Okay, so like as we look at this piece, Blue Morning Glories from 1935, what's jumping out to you? What do you notice about it? I really like um, just the interaction between the two flowers in there, that negative space in between, um, how she's kind of focused on that and even added in the purple color in the background, that purple blue in there too. And um, I mean, you kind of don't, usually I think when you're looking at flowers, you think of them all from the same direction too. She's looking down from up above and then the other ones from the side. So I feel like this one's just different from her other ones because it's usually just a zoomed in of the top and this shows the side of the flower on there as well. Yeah, I I think that is like like you said it's an interesting angle because we're seeing we're essentially like at eye level with the flower that is in the background that's that's um further back because I can't see down into the center of that. Um, but then I see the petals opening for the other morning glory that's more in the foreground. So it's like I'm looking down at that one slightly. And it is this close cropped image where I don't even actually see the full flower. 
I don't see either full flower. I see like the petals are running off the edge of the picture plane. Um, I don't see the stem. I don't see any leaves around it. I don't see any background context, actually. The background I find interesting as a choice because she made that background the same color scheme as I see in the flower petals. Yes, I think that's interesting too, how it's not like you would expect it to be green or have some other sorts of um, colors of the the different things around it, like the leaves or maybe even like brown of the dirt, but yeah. it's just like that flower kind of continues on into the background. Yeah, and it, it's almost like a monochromatic painting, you know, uh, mono meaning one and monochromatic is like always sh different shades of one color. This is pre predominantly blue and, and purple with like white and black mixed in to make lighter and darker tints and shades and all that. There are a few pops of like that, that orangey yellow, but it's almost exclusively in this cool neutral color scheme. Um, and it, it makes it feel very just sort of soft and soothing to me as I'm looking at these organic shapes that of the flower petals that are sort of coming together. Like, you know, the way that, that the flower is like blooming out, typically you think of that opening as like a, a, a bursting action because we've got all those angled lines implied by the edges of the flower petals that got all point into that one point. Um, but because of the softness of the color scheme and because it's these gentler curves and the organic shapes, it still feels like this soothing opening motion. The way that, you know, like the morning yes. glories sort of like yeah. open up and it's like the gentle blooming. It's not like an explosion of color coming out. Yes, I think she did that too with, you can see some of the brush strokes in there as well. So they're kind of softer and they follow along more of that organic um, line. So they're not all straight edges just going into the middle. They're softer and curved and going out towards the outside. So it, it helps to bring those lines are bringing that soft, like slow opening of the morning glory out to the outside of the petals. Yeah. And, and I think like, as I'm looking at this, I just, I keep thinking about how I would construct an image like this. You know, like, I think that's just like the painter in me. I'm sure yeah. you have the same experience yeah. when you're looking at a work of art. I'm looking at it and I'm thinking about the choices that she would have made along the way. And I keep coming back to that negative space. And I think it's kind of interesting because the choice to make the negative space fall in line with the color scheme of everything else, on the one hand, it lowers the contrast, which it makes it harder to recognize from a distance. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it, 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 it doesn't... Yeah, go ahead. It makes the background blend into that foreground or to the object more. So there's not, from a distance, there's not so much of like that shocking transition from background to object or subject matter. Yeah, so it, it gets that like figure ground play where it's like the, the, the flowers in the foreground kind of just recede into this background. And on the one hand, like... Visually, 
I usually want my work to pop. I want you to be able to see it and identify it immediately. But her choice, actually, it softens it and unifies the the color scheme, which makes it a little bit gentler. It makes it feel like these morning glory flowers are just in a sea of other morning glories and not like we're not seeing like other plants and stuff around it. It feels like they're being you know, almost embraced by the background that is like, you know, a familiar type, you know, it's like, you know, um, which I find kind of interesting. And it also just like when I think about the modernism and the abstraction, abstraction and like what was happening in other movements at that time, it feels like this nod towards the modern aesthetic and like, you know, even though she's not doing the cubist fragmentation of the picture plane and stuff like that. Right. She's still showing she understands the the trends. She understands what the other artists are doing and she's playing it out in a different way because it's, even though it is based on observation, it still feels modern. It still doesn't feel like a traditional still life. Because there's no vase holding the flowers. Yeah, it's like a new take on a still life. Or also even she's just like applied her own um, way of abstract art. So she's like taken the ideas from others with cubism, but then created it in her own way where she's blending the background and the foreground and making it softer and not such hard edges either. And making that, um, making us look at the flower of a still life in a different way than, you know, just here's flowers in a vase and here's what they look like really just going in and exploring those flowers and seeing what we would see, what the underside of a flower might be like. What if you looked at it from maybe a flower from a different angle what would you notice? What colors would you see? So she really is into that observation and getting to know her objects. Yeah, it really is kind of, it. it's taking the familiar and presenting it in a way that seems totally foreign. And I, I think that's, that's kind of cool. Um, anything else you want to say about? Th- no. Okay. So, so to wrap it up, I always you know, after a nice, natural, free-flowing conversation, I like to wrap it up in a totally unnatural way (laughs) and do a hard transition. And I'm wrapping it up just a three-point rating scale. Where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? lab. Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's a joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) Uh, you know, I would, I'm torn between the Louvre and the lab, um, cause it's just so interesting. I feel like to me as, uh, a scientific type piece, but I think I'm going to have to go with the Louvre. I think it just has that, um, beauty and the mixing of colors and just, it gives you something new and different to look at. And I think it'd be a great, um, a great addition to all of those old kind of stuffy artworks that are in there in the Louvre already. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably a fair assessment of it. Um, you know, I I always go back and forth when I think about this. I I always think like I could argue it any different way. I feel like for me, this is a lab piece just because it does have that feel of like like a scientific observation and diagram, you know, like I feel like I can look at this and finally find the motivation to learn the different parts of a flower, but I won't, you know, (laughs) even in doing research for this episode, I didn't do that. Um, It does. I mean, it does inspire you. And it also makes you think like when we were talking about this, I was also thinking, I'm like, wait, are morning glories the ones that just open in the morning and then close? Yeah, they're trying to close. Like, is it, you know, like what time of day? So it did make me more think about like the flower and the anatomy of it and like how it grows and things like that. Yeah, they do. Um, morning glories are the ones that that open up to take in more sunlight, and then they sort of like close to at, at like at sunset, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it it does kind of spark some curiosity, makes me want to learn something. And like I said, for me, her work is so much about looking at the familiar from a new perspective, from a different perspective and from such an extreme perspective that a lot of times I, I don't recognize it immediately. Yeah. You know, um, this one was pretty easily identifiable from, from the start, but like there are a number in her body of work that are even closer cropped that are even focusing on just like a small part of a petal and it, it becomes, and it um, just is a bunch of colors. Yeah. You're like, I have no idea what that is. And then you read the plaque next to it and you're like, oh, it says iris. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we're generally in, in line, but I'm trying to find a way to disagree with you for, for the sake of better content. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm too agreeable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just like the fact that like, if you put this up in the Louvre, it would give like someone would come along and be like, you're, you're looking at like those traditional still lives, like portraits of people, like a statue. And then you'd come to this and you'd be like, what the heck is this? This is like a random, like, I don't even know, should this go here? I like of it more as that idea. Like someone's like, why did you end up putting this in the Louvre? Like this doesn't really match the aesthetics of everything else. Well, it's, it's like Monet's haystack pieces where it's like, you know, what, because it's so different from what other people were doing. It's like, what is that all about? And like Monet's haystack paintings, like I, I see it, I get it, I appreciate it, but also I, I don't like it. (laughs) I, 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 you know, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of O'Keeffe, but I've learned a lot from O'Keeffe. Like I've looked at a lot of her work. I appreciate a lot of her work. Um, for what she was doing and the technique and and the ideas behind it but it it's just like it's not my cup of tea yeah I like I'm very fond of like her cow skulls that she makes actually um some of her more like desert work where she was because you like dead things (laughs) you get it monster (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking flowers blooming life some optimism yes no Um, but just I mean that's looking at it a different way um I also her like 
cloud piece that is at the Art Institute, I find very interesting. Like Oh, the view from above the clouds. The view from above, yeah. yes. Like it's an airplane view and, you know, but it looks almost childlike in some ways. But yeah, I think I really like the thoughts behind her artwork and what she was trying to come across with. I don't know if everything is always my favorite pieces of hers, but yeah. 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 Uh, so again, I try to disagree and start mm-hmm. some... <laughs> Sorry, I'm and, and we end up in the same place. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it is like so much like our careers because we both got hired and interviewed at the same time. Um, well, and I'm like, I feel the same about her. Like I like some of her, like hers was just like, I was like, oh, I know more. I know a little bit about her. So I, that's why I like picked her, but I'm like, I'm not like, woo. It's like, I love Georgia O'Keefe. That's fine. Um, but regardless, thank you so much for taking yeah. the time to join me today. I appreciate it. Yeah. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website WhoArtedPodcast.com. Podcast done. <laughs>